This is Wrestling Nostalgia with Dave Dynasty. Greetings, wrestling fans, and welcome to Wrestling Nostalgia. I am your host, Dave Dynasty. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is a very special episode of Wrestling Nostalgia, as this is pretty much officially our seven-year anniversary episode. Uh, the episode you're listening to is being released on October 11th, and the very first episode of this podcast was released on October 3rd, 2016. At that time, it was known as the Dave Dynasty Show. And I'd like to thank a few people who helped get this podcast to where it is now. A special thanks to Ike Isaacs for all his help along the way. He did so many of the interviews uh, during the seven-year time with, with lots of talents. Uh, so thank you to Ike. A very special thanks to Mance Warner, who uh, very early on in the show provided Warner's Wisdom, a segment that we did. And it was great to see to listen to him talk and develop who he is and that that, that persona that he has now. A special thanks to all of the amazing guests and contributors that we've had through the years. Uh, so many people that have, have helped us create this content, and, and I couldn't have done it without any of you. A thank you to my wife for all of her support and her encouragement. And of course, a, th a very special thank you to all of the listeners out there for all of their support and positivity through the years. Uh, without all of you, I could not have done this podcast for one episode, uh, much less for seven years. And we have a really good episode for you here on this anniversary edition uh, coming in a bit, we'll have John Lawson on the show, who, uh, along with me, will count down the top five managers in WWE history. That's a very exciting conversation. Uh, it's fun to uh, to dive into WWE history. I know you guys always love it when we do, and me and John talk about what we view are the top five managers in the history of the WWE. Uh, before we get there, though, make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform we're available on all those platforms <laughs> and make sure if possible to give us a rating and review that helps us in those algorithms so that when people are listening to wrestling podcasts we come up as a suggested uh, subscription for them and make sure you uh, share the episodes tell your friends help us network and and grow our listenership you can all fo also follow us on social media the podcast is on twitter or x uh, facebook instagram and threads just look up wrestle nostalgia and we are on all those you can follow me personally, and the best way to do that is on Twitter, X, whatever, at the Dave Dynasty. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Dave Dynasty. There, uh, there you can find all the podcast episodes for all my podcasts, along with lots of classic wrestling and many other things. And uh, probably the best way to support the show is to go out and buy a shirt. And you can see all those shirts that we offer at prowrestlingtees.com slash the Dave Dynasty. There's several choices there, so go out and buy yourself one today. So, before we get to that manager countdown, let's talk about a few important things in wrestling history that occurred during this time period. Of course, this episode is dropping on October 11th, uh, so the time period we're going to discuss is from October 11th through October 24th, right before the next episode. And here are some important happenings in wrestling history. On October 11th, 1987, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee defeated Soldat Ustinov and Boris Sukhoff to win the AWA World Tag Titles. I remember this title change so well. I've always been a huge Jerry Lawler fan. It was really exciting for me uh, when him and Dundee won the AWA World Tag Titles. On October 11th, 1945, one of the greatest performers in the history of the business and definitely one of the greatest talkers, Dusty Rhodes, was born. On October 12th, 1992, Bret Hart defeated Ric Flair on a house show to win his first WWF title. I've, always, again, always been a huge Bret Hart fan, so this was really exciting to see him become world champion. On October 14th, 1935, Black Jack Lanza was born. On October 14th, 2009, Captain Lou Albano passed away at the age of 76. 
on October 16, 2003, Stu Hart passed away at the age of 88. On October 17, 1940, Baron Von Raschke was born. On October 19, 2003, Road Warrior Hawk passed away at the much too young age of 46. On October 20, 1964, Mad Dog Bashan defeated Vern Gagne to win the AWA world title. On October 20, 1958, Scott Hall was born. And lastly, on October 24, 1943, superstar Bill Dundee was born. Uh, those are just a few highlights. Of course, that's not all-encompassing. But those are a few things that really jump out at me and that really hold my interest. Well, I think you would like to hear them as well. So now, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, it'll be me and John Lawson, and we will count down the top five managers in the history of the WWA. If you like horror movies, be sure to check out Dave Dynasty and Ike Isaacs on the Listen to Their Screams Horror Podcast. It is available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Listen to Screams. That is Listen, the number two in Screams. All right, and we are back here on Wrestling Nostalgia. And at this time, I'm joined by noted uh, photographer, writer, historian, John Lawson. John, thanks for returning to the show. Glad to be here, Dave. Been a while. It has, yeah. Yeah, it's always it's always fun to have you on, pick your brain, and talk some old WWA. And on uh, at this, this turn, we're going to talk and count down uh, what we view as the top five managers in the history of the WWA. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of you know subject subjectivity to this. Uh, well, absolutely, probably except for number one. I think everybody except for number one. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to argue number one. Uh, but uh, there are there are some uh, honorable mentions here for other guys that could very well have, you know slipped into this top five, you know, based on what they've accomplished. And uh, this, of course, is not meant as any slight to anybody in their career. This is just a, a fun little discussion to talk about some of these guys. So uh, let's. That's- that's let's, right. Yeah, let's start counting these down. Uh, John, I will I will rattle off the names, and, and I'll let you kind of talk about them because uh, you got a lot of firsthand experience of seeing these guys, uh, most of them up, up close and personal during their time. So uh, coming in and our, on our list at number five is Mark Manson. So, uh, John, tell us about Mark Manson. That's right. Mark Manson is a, a guy that I believe I got to see for probably virtually his whole career, definitely his whole career in the WWA. His real name was uh, Mark Kroll, and I speak in the past tense because, unfortunately, he did pass away a few years ago yeah. at only uh, age 65. And I, I believe he was uh, from northern Indiana, perhaps Elkhart or South Bend, somewhere around there. I, I forget to where he was from, but uh, I, I believe that was where he was from. And uh, he started wrestling in 1972 and became a manager around that same time as well. And his name, though, was changed because he had a striking resemblance to someone by the name of Charles Manson, (laughs) the notorious notorious, uh, killer who uh, died in prison just a few years ago. And, you know, his name still pops up in tabloids, news stories and all that. I know there's, I think, uh, somebody from the, the Manson family that's going to be released or has been recently released from prison after, you know, serving 50 years or what have you for, for some atrocious uh, murders that took place in, in California. But, uh, you know, the, if, if people want to learn more about that, they can, they can find out that information you know, on their own quite easily. But uh, uh, he had uh, 
a, a kind of a long, bushy black beard and had long black hair, probably even longer than than, than the more infamous Manson Charles. <laughs> but uh, he he became uh, the manager of uh, a notable tag team called the Graduates, and uh, that was made up of. Uh, a longtime veteran, Angelo Papo, of course, that's the father of Macho Man Randy Savage, and uh, his brother Lanny Papo, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the tag team partner was Ken Dillinger. Yeah, this is probably uh, what Manson's yeah. most known for, in my eyes, is this the manager yeah, of the Reds. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, uh, because he was a wrestler, uh, he would form uh, tag teams. From time to time, with those guys, either as a six man or sometimes Papo wasn't always around for the whole circuit. He would always hit hit Indianapolis, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure during that time Papo was a uh, physical education teacher somewhat where in the uh, Chicago area, mm-hmm. and uh, wasn't always uh, willing to uh, come to the smaller towns. So I know a lot of times, like in my hometown of, of Terre Haute, Indiana. Instead of it being the graduates Papo and Dillinger, it would be Dillinger and Manson as the tag team. And, and Manson in the ring was uh, was a pump machine. He would yep. just simply go fine. And uh, if you can uh, find some of his uh, work on YouTube, uh, not only uh, matches but also some uh, some classic interviews, especially with Bob Luce on uh, some of the Chicago wrestling shows. Uh, the graduates wore cap and gowns to the ring. And uh, Minson also wore the cap and gown, but he also carried a large textbook with him. And that would be something that uh, would be used in a lot of finishes. If he was, uh, if the graduates were going over, he would uh, usually hit uh, one of the opponents in the throat and uh, with the book, and then that would uh, get the three count. Uh, sometimes that would backfire, and <laughs> the uh, baby face would move out of the way, and, and uh, usually Dillinger would be the one taking the, uh, the pinfall. Uh, between uh, himself and uh, and Papo, but uh, 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 they were more or less a uh, a mid-level tag team. Uh, they would uh, win uh, a fair share of their matches and would be featured perhaps on uh, semi-mains on the, the smaller towns on the circuit, such as Terre Haute, Champaign, and the like, but uh, uh, never made it up to uh, getting a championship match in Indianapolis that I can uh, recall. And they would they would usually be uh, the tag team that a that a challenging team would probably beat on their way to to getting a title shot. Uh, after the uh, the graduates ran their course, he did manage another notable tag team. Um, uh, again, uh, with a, a notable veteran in uh, Mitsu Arakawa, but uh, the tag team partner was uh, a rather upstart in the business, Kim Duck. Um, a large Korean who had come to the United States and uh, had worked, uh, I believe, in the Mid-South area before he came here. He uh, later went on to work in the AWA quite a bit, uh, had a couple of runs in WWE under the name of Tiger Taguchi, but uh, uh, only retired just a few years ago from wrestling in Japan where where he uh, uh, would go back and forth between his runs. Um, but uh, uh, Manson changed his appearance a little bit uh, from his ring attire. No more cap and gown for that. But uh, um, uh, that was another mid-level tag team. They would uh, be in semi-main events, maybe an occasional main event in the uh, smaller towns of the circuit. But uh, 
Uh, and, and I think they may have even gotten a title shot uh, along the way in Indianapolis. If not together, definitely as singles or, or teaming up with other uh, partners such as uh, Bill Miller and the like. Um, Manson did also venture off into the Alabama Territory for a few years, and uh, then he, I, he appeared to, to have gotten out of the business. So I know in, in uh, getting the newsletters that I had around that time and, uh, and, and collecting uh, various newspaper magazines, that you didn't really see or hear from him at all. And then suddenly he came back in late 1980 or just a couple of months in the WWA. Uh, his hair was a little bit shorter. Uh, he, he put on a lot of muscle. Uh, he'd always been, I think, a, a bodybuilder. But uh, during that uh, that uh, absence, uh, it, uh, it served him well. He looked really, really great. And I was hoping he was going to stick around and uh, perhaps even go back to being a manager. But uh, um, either either he decided he didn't want to stay in the business or the, the money wasn't right. But uh, he, he did just go away. And uh, we never did see him in the ring after that. And an interesting thing I found about him is that there's someone that is selling some of his old gear on eBay, and it's been on there for several years. I've seen it priced as much as almost a thousand dollars, and I think this week you could buy it for for three hundred, which was seventy five dollars <laughs> off. But you could get a couple of his old posters that he used to sell at the matches, um, his uh, some of his. Uh, caps from whenever he was uh, part of the graduates and, and some other stuff but uh, uh he, he, not being a really really well-known wrestler it, it's probably one of those that's not really going to to uh have a lot of people seeking his collectibles like yeah. he might have for some, some of the other stars but uh that's mark manson that we rate at number five yeah kind of a yeah kind of one of those unheralded talents like you said a bump, a bump machine which is kind of a that's kind of a, a a trend with the WWA managers, <laughs> the, the the bump machines. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, except for the next one. That we'll that's that's about. right. Yeah. I don't I don't think he took too many bumps. Um, coming in at number four, uh, actually one of the more legendary managers in the sport overall. Uh, but we're just going to discuss particularly, primarily his his time in WWA. Uh, gentleman's gentleman Saul Weingraf. So, uh, John, tell us about Gentleman Saul. Gentleman Saul Weingraf had two. Uh, stints in the WWA. Uh, he came in in the early days of the WWA that was formed back in uh, 1964 as the manager of Kurt and Carl Von Brauner, a tag team that he managed through, I don't really know how many territories. I think they won yeah. championships everywhere they went, yeah. uh, primarily throughout the South. Uh, they, they That tag team did venture all the way to California, but they had a different manager, I think, but uh, all through the uh, the uh, southeast and uh, in, into our area, of course, and uh, I believe maybe even Detroit, uh, gentleman Saul Weingroff managed the Von Brauners. And uh, the Von Brauners were the fourth WWA tag team champions in the, in the uh, initial year of the WWA. And uh, then after, uh, after they dropped the belts to uh, – to a babyface tag team, I believe it was a babyface tag team. I'd have to look at the notes on that. No, indeed, they, they, uh, there was a, a deal where we had a series of heel tag team champions. They lost the belts to the Volkoff brothers, mm-hmm. Chris and Nikolai Volkoff, and they in turn lost them to the Assassins, who we'll talk about briefly coming up in a, in a little while. Yeah, which everybody, everybody's uh, always I, confused. That is not the Nikolai Volkoff that modern fans know. It is a right. totally different the guy. Yeah, the original. 
he even spelled Nikolai differently. Different yeah, yeah. A more famous Nikolai from the, the WWE, WWF, yeah. WWF. He had an A, uh, right. ending his name in L-I-A-I, but uh, yeah. this was the original Nikolai Volkov that we're speaking yep, of. Correct. Um, uh, after Weingroff left the area, he came back in 1974 and 1975, and he was the original manager of the Mask Strangler. And that's somebody we've talked about on a, a previous episode of your show. Uh, the Mask Strangler was uh, John Hill, also known as Guy Mitchell, Jerry Bryant, and countless other names. <laughs> and uh, uh, he seemed like the perfect fit to uh, introduce a, a masked mystery man to, uh, to the area that way. But uh, after a while, uh, he was no longer the manager of the Strangler, and uh, Strangler ended up being managed by a, another uh, famed WWA manager that we'll talk about in just a little bit. And uh, he also, the Weingroff also managed the tag team, the Legionnaires. That was originally Sergeant Jacques Goulet, also known, of course, under his real name, or at least of his uh, original wrestling name of Rene Goulet, mm -hmm. and uh, Private Don Fargo. And Fargo was later replaced on that tag team by a soldier of both. And uh, the Legionnaires did hold the WWA tag team title under their guidance before uh, switching to a different manager. Uh, and uh, I also kind of think that Weingroff was one of the first wrestlers, or at least as a manager, that, that really had branding. He always wore the same outfit. He would wear a black suit, uh, a black fedora, and he usually had a black cane with him and uh, sometimes even a black briefcase. Now, he would sometimes take the, uh, the jacket off whenever he'd be managing a ringside, and he, he would just have a dress shirt or uh, a sweater on, but uh, he always seemed to wear the same outfit. And, and I can remember back in, in 1974 and 75, I, I would have been way too young to, to see him in 64, but he just looked older than all get out. But uh, during that time, he was probably only in his 50s. Uh, after, after he uh, left our area in 75, he went back to his adopted hometown of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where he did a little bit of uh, managing. He was uh, a sign painter. Um, he got involved in uh, law enforcement. And uh, uh, he lived to be 72. He uh, passed away in 1988. But uh, Saul Weingroff is the one that, uh, that we are ranking at number four, because he had uh, two tag team championship reigns with the uh, teams that he managed. Yeah, there was so many, so many guys back in the old, the other others in older decades that look so much older than what they do comparatively nowadays. It's you can you That's can right. tell as time goes on. That's it's right. it's I mean, of course, you know, guys like Arn Anderson who looked, I think he looked old out of birth for birth, but uh, uh, <laughs> <It's true. laughs> yeah. But uh, so moving on, number three, uh, a very prominent manager. And the WWA Major Duke George, John about Duke. Yes, now Major Duke George started out in our territory in uh, probably around 1974ish. I'm guessing it is as a, a preliminary heel that would just kind of come and go. He'd be used on cards as needed. Um, he was not the major at that time. He was just Duke George, and he would usually wear a um, flowery, flowery tights. Uh, uh, that uh, would uh, hide his girth as best, best as it could because he was kind of a chubby guy and uh, wore a double singlet to hold everything in place. Um, I can't remember ever seeing him win a match as Duke George. 
he would occasionally uh, go to a 15-20 minute time limit draw against another uh, preliminary talent, but uh, he never won a match until he became a manager. Uh, in uh, 1977, he got a big break when uh, Dick the Bruiser decided to give him a gimmick as the Major Duke George, and he would wear uh, more or less a military outfit, uh, kind of a, a hat almost like Smokey Bear. He would carry a whistle that was very, very annoying to fans, and he got to be the manager of Handsome Jimmy and Luscious Johnny Valiant whenever they returned to the WWA in 1977. And it was very, very successful uh, alliance for them. They uh, went on to uh, score the WWA tag team titles twice during that time, and that made a, a grand total of three for the Valiants because they had uh, held the belts a few years earlier during their initial run in the WWA. But uh, just as soon as uh, George became the major, he suddenly started winning some of his matches, quite a bit of them, as a matter of fact. If he would be uh, matched up against uh, another preliminary wrestler on the undercard or even someone toward the uh, upper preliminary to, to uh, mid-card status, he would, uh, would get the win usually over them. Um, he would often tag team with the Valiants. Uh, Jimmy would sometimes be uh, busy in other areas, maybe working the Memphis and Nashville circuit uh, during the week and, and only working uh, the WWA on the weekends. But uh, uh, Major Duke George would fill in for him whenever uh, he wasn't available. He also managed Killer Verdue. He was a, uh, a big rugged wrestler that uh, had uh, pretty big success uh, for one big run in the, in the uh, WWF. We got a uh, main event at Madison Square Garden against Bruno San Martino. Um, he uh, also wrestled in California and uh, a number of uh, NWA cities, but uh, he had a short uh, stint in the WWA, uh, never won any championships, but was one of the guys that, uh, that George managed. And uh, whenever the Valiants left the WWA to go back to the WWF, Major Duke George became the manager of Golden Boy Paul Christie, and he was the mastermind that uh, convinced Christie to turn on tag team partner Spike Huber and become a heel. And uh, I believe that would have been taking place in uh, sometime in 1978. And uh, that changed the uh, career uh, that point, at that point for Christie, who had, had always been a babyface throughout his uh, long career throughout uh, our territory and uh, got uh, Christie into uh, main events. Um, uh, Christie did not win the heavyweight title in his uh, challenges against Dick the Bruiser, but he did uh, win the uh, tag team title with uh, um, Nature Boy Roger Kirby. Uh -huh. And uh, it was kind of an unusual circumstance the way George left our territory. In uh, 1979, uh, and, and Duke told this to me himself a few years ago before he passed away, that uh, he had some kind of a dispute with Bruiser on a spot show. Uh, I'm not sure where it was. It wasn't one of the, the major towns. But uh, uh, apparently Duke had gotten some hot dogs from the concession stand, and Bruiser was insisting that he pay for them, <laughs> whereas Duke was under the assumption that the boys got their hot dogs free, and they usually got their beer taken care of as well. But uh, on this particular night, 
uh, you know, maybe Bruiser had just already decided he didn't really care to have him around, but he told him he was either going to have to pay for the hot dogs or he's going to be fired. And I, I think Duke just basically told him where he could stick the hot dogs. <laughs> and uh, that became the end of Major Duke George in the <laughs> WWF. Um, and and uh, it was just a few years ago, uh, Duke George tracked me down and, uh, and uh, found someone that had my phone number and he gave me a call and he, he was wanting a magazine. Uh, there was an article I'd written for the wrestling news. It's called uh, The Major versus the Photos, where I had a, a whole series of, of pictures that I'd taken that showed him interfering in the matches. And uh, the whole, whole story was Duke George having excuses as to what was really taking place in those matches. It was not what those pictures were showing, but uh, he had, had not kept a copy of that, and uh, he had a grandchild that he wanted to see them to see that magazine and uh, I happened to have a copy and uh, mailed it off to him to uh, in, in Las Vegas where he had become a uh, professional poker player and uh, he got that and uh, I talked to him I think once or twice after he got in the magazine and then all of a sudden the next thing I'm hearing was that uh, he'd had a, a heart attack and uh, had unfortunately died and I believe that was uh, 2016 and another thing about Dick George that I can recall was that uh, even before he became Major Duke George and, and uh, had his uh, greatest success in wrestling, he had a driver's license that showed his proper name as Gorgeous George. <laughs> now, whether or not this is a, a gimmick driver's license, that I don't know. You know. Perhaps he really did change his name to Gorgeous George. <laughs> uh, stranger things have happened in professional wrestling. And, and of course, uh, along the way, there's been so many people that have claimed to be either the original or uh, a subsequent gorgeous George. Yeah. Uh, uh, he never, he never did work in our territory under that name, but uh, <laughs> he, he had the driver's license. And, and another thing that uh, I don't think people probably really knew this about Duke George is that you, you never would see him without a shirt or just wearing regular wrestling trunks. And uh, that was because he had these horrific scars that covered uh, more than half of his chest area. And uh, uh, my father, who, as you know, uh, worked for the Athletic Commission uh -huh. for the state of Indiana, whenever he was uh, uh, in the dressing room with him and he saw that, he, he just happened to you know, ask him you know, about it. And, and Duke had said that, uh, that, uh, I, that it was his mother that I believe had poured scolding hot water on him huh. because he was playing too closely to the, uh, the kitchen range and uh, whether or not there was any any charges uh, pressed against uh, his, his parents that I, I don't know but it, it left him uh, severely maimed and <laughs> every once in a while you, uh, he would be backstage and he would just have a, a towel covering that area but yeah. uh, you can still see those, those uh, permanent scars that uh, he had to live with for, for really his entire life so Major George number three I think that was uh, a pretty easy pick number three for me in the of the WWF. Yeah, when you when you got someone that's managing the Valiants, that's gonna that, that puts them in a very prominent position. And uh, perhaps uh, I don't know. He could, he could have he could have easily gone to other territories with yeah. gimmick. Yeah. And I, and it definitely would have worked. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder how many people were uh, were fired from a territory or, or quit over a territory over hot dogs. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's probably not the only one. Probably uh, not. No, not in wrestling. Days, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would imagine things like that probably happened in the, the Nick Goulas promotion. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. So, 
All right, let's move on to number two, friend of the show, handsome Johnny Starr. John, tell us about Johnny. That's right, Johnny Starr. His real name is John Davis. He's uh, an Indiana guy, and uh, I believe it's episode 49 of your podcast where you can hear a great interview about him. Uh But uh, I'm picking Johnny Starr at number two. Um, he, He started out being called just John Starr. Sometimes it was Johnny Starr. Once, I believe they even introduced him in Indianapolis uh, on, a, on a televised match as Jim Starr, and maybe that was a mistake. Maybe they were going to try out that name. His real first name is, is John, but uh, his wrestling name became Handsome Johnny Starr. Uh, for a little while, he was Gorgeous Johnny Starr, but then it uh, kind of transitioned to the Handsome and Gorgeous Johnny Starr, and then just became simply Handsome Johnny Starr. And he was a guy that uh, got his uh, break working a, a few outlaw shows in, in Indiana and uh, surrounding states before uh, Bruiser was willing to take him on. But uh, he started as a preliminary wrestler in 1974. And uh, after a few months in the territory, he got a big break because uh, another manager in the area had suddenly left. And, or not really suddenly left. He'd given notice, but uh, kind of worked his way out of the territory. And uh, there was kind of a changeover of talent, and Johnny Starr became the manager of the new lead heel in our territory, and that was the one and only fabulous Ox Baker. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, of course, went on to uh, end the reign of uh, Cowboy Bob Ellis and held the title for a good long while under uh, Starr's management. And uh, Johnny Starr was another guy, just like Duke George and uh, a lot of these other guys, that, and Mark Manson, that once they became a manager, uh, they no longer were losing their preliminary matches. They, they suddenly had uh, the ability to win. Sometimes that was because their, their charges were at ringside with them and, and uh, would interfere and, and help them gain, gain uh, a pinfall. But uh, Johnny Starr became an accomplished wrestler in his own right. Um, probably uh, out of all the, the managers that we've talked about so far, I would say he was the, the best uh, in-ring talent um, as a as a wrestler as well as a, as a manager. Um, in addition to managing uh, the Ox, he also managed Chuck the Monster O'Connor, uh, who of course went on to be uh, better known as Big John Stud, mm-hmm. and uh, together Star managed O'Connor and Ox to the uh, WWA Tag Team Championship uh, not long after Ox had dropped the singles title. And uh, Starr also took over as the manager of the Strangler from uh, Saul Weingroff that we talked about earlier on. And uh, But he did have the uh, unenviable task of having to follow the footsteps of uh, perhaps the greatest manager of all time, uh, a guy named Bobby Heenan that I believe a lot of people will know about. Mm-hmm. Um in the late 70s, Starr quit being a manager, but he stayed on as a full-time wrestler, uh, primarily focusing on his singles career, but he'd be in uh, various tag teams with different guys. And he, he had a slow burn transitioning from being a heel to a baby face to where the fans really weren't sure what to make of him. But I can remember that uh, he had a baby face match against uh, Bob Boyer, who was wrestling as an Indian, uh, Chief Bold Eagle at the time, uh, longtime fan favorite. 
but uh, they were able to turn the crowd to where the, the fans finally got behind Johnny Starr and recognized him as a baby face. And uh, I think he did end up losing that match as a 15, as a, you know, a 15-minute time limit match that looked like it was going to go to a draw, but he ended up getting caught in a, uh, in a pinning combination with just seconds to go in the match. And so he, he did lose that. He didn't really have a whole lot of success moving up the card to, to bigger and better things uh, on the, on those cards, and he eventually uh, got out of the, the business. Uh, he uh, operated a TV station in Indianapolis for a while, and uh, now I believe he's uh, uh, a minister at a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find a number of his matches and interviews on YouTube. Uh, the one, though, that I do say stay away from is don't judge him by what you see when he went to Memphis as a babyface because they, they were giving him a gimmick that just didn't really fit uh, his uh, his natural character and, uh, and, and his abilities. Uh, he, he was much better as a heel, of course, but uh, even as a, as a baby face in the WWA, he had a, an edge to him, but uh, they were trying to make him into uh, more or less uh, uh, like a rock and roll express type of baby face when he went to Memphis. And, and he didn't like it there either and uh, ended up... Uh, uh, leaving there, and I, I think shortly after that, just completely got out of the wrestling business for good. So that's our number two manager of the WWA, handsome Johnny Starr. Yeah, John. John's... He, he fortunately is is still with us. Yep. Yep. He, he's, he's probably in his mid sixties, I'd say, right now. And uh, and uh, I, I did see him a number of years ago uh, at Circle City Wrestling. They uh, they honored him and the aforementioned uh, Chief Bold Eagle and and gave them plaques and uh, I got to have a uh, nice long conversation with him in person that night. And I guess that's probably coming up on probably getting close to 30 years ago, but uh, it doesn't really seem like it was that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. John, John's a good guy. And, uh, and, uh, and, and a talent, another guy that, you know, uh, because, you know, we being in Indianapolis, not getting a lot of the, you know, as much attention as some of the other territories, it was, you know, a talent that really went a little unheralded, a little unappreciated uh, for what he was. Right. He was a talented guy. Right, um, he he could have gone on to other territories and, and been a, a successful uh, manager and wrestler. I'm, I'm quite sure. Yeah, um, I I would have I was always hoping that he would uh, get a shot in the in the WWA, but there was probably somebody there that was that uh, had that slot that he needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of a talented guy, and speaking of a guy that went on to uh, even bigger success, I don't think it's anybody's surprise uh, when you're talking the uh, the number one manager. In the history of the WWE, and I, and I would my favorite and, and what I feel is the greatest talent in, in wrestling period history uh, overall. Uh, at number one, Bobby Heenan. Uh, when his his time in WWE was Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan, of course later became the Brain. But uh, we could go on for hours about Bobby Heenan. But uh, but John, talk to us a little bit about uh, Bobby in the WWE. That's right. Uh, Bobby Heenan is uh, undoubtedly the number one manager of the WWA uh, in, in the history of that promotion. And uh, just like you, I, I truly feel that Bobby Heenan is the greatest wrestling manager of, of all time for any territory, bar none. Um, if, uh, if you've read his bios, uh, you know, he's had a couple of books. He was born in Chicago, but uh, he really did grow up in Indianapolis. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I was born in 1963, so I don't really have uh, – a great memory until around 1966, but I got to see the uh, formative years of Bobby Heenan 
as not only a, a wrestler but also a manager because this is really where he got his start in, in uh, Indiana for the WWA. And uh, his, his first managing assignment, uh, he got to take over as the manager of the, the tag team, the Assassins, which, of course, were not the, the Assassins from the uh, Southern Territories that mm. were, were very, very successful. The uh, tag team that we had in the WWA under the hoods were uh, Guy Mitchell and uh, Joe Tommaso. And uh, they came into the territory with uh, a different manager originally, Coconut Willie, and uh, he went away, and uh, Bobby Heenan took over as their manager. And uh, the Assassins were three-time WWA Tag Team Champions, and then I believe uh, the uh, latter two were under the guidance of Heenan. And, uh, that, but he was just getting started at that point. Uh, he went on to manage uh, the next heel Tag Team Champions in our area, the Devil's Duo. That was Angelo Papo and Chris Markoff. And uh, they held the uh, tag team title twice. And uh, Heenan then went on to become the uh, manager of uh, Black Jack Lanza and uh, took him to uh, holding the uh, WWA title longer than anybody held it. And uh, then, of course, uh, after Lanza dropped the singles title, Black Jack Mulligan was brought into the area. And the, the famed tag team, the Black Jacks, that went from territory to territory, became a tag team for the very first time in Indianapolis, and that was with Heenan. And uh, there are some uh, great matches you can find on YouTube of uh, Heenan either managing the Blackjacks or even in a tag team with them. I uh, urge you all to look at those. Um, After uh, the uh, singles reign of uh, Blackjack Lanza, we had Baron Von Raschke, as our lead heel in the WWA, and he was managed by Heenan for his uh, entire run in the late 60s and in early 70s. The Baron held the uh, singles title three times. He, he won it, lost it, won it, lost it, and won it back again for a third time before he was done. And uh, there was also a short period of time where, under Heenan's management, that Von Raschke also held the tag team title simultaneously. He uh, tag teamed with Ernie the Cat Lad and uh, held those uh, tag team titles as well as the singles title. Uh, But then a few weeks later, he did drop the singles title to uh, Cowboy Bob Ellis and uh, then uh, eventually did leave the area. But along the way, Heenan also started managing uh, an up-and-coming singles wrestler in the form of handsome Jimmy Valiant. And... uh, and uh, after uh, Valiant uh, had been in the territory for a while, and after uh, the Blackjacks had left and Von Raschke had left, uh, luscious Johnny Valiant came to the area. And for the very first time, the Valiant brothers became a tag team, and uh, they held the uh, WWA tag team title with uh, Heenan as their manager. But along uh, this time, in, uh, say, uh, probably early 74, I always noticed that Heenan wasn't appearing very much on the smaller towns. He wasn't coming to Terre Haute. Uh, he wasn't coming to Paris, Illinois. He wasn't coming to Vincennes, Indiana anymore. And uh, you know, it, uh, I started uh, seeing things in the magazines, which sometimes took what would seem like three to six months before you would see uh, the news of the day appear in the print magazines. But uh, he was appearing more and more frequently in the AWA. 
and uh, he eventually did give his notice because he was offered a, a full-time deal to move to Indianapolis and work for Vern Gagne in the uh, AWA, where he became the uh, the uh, first manager uh, ever, I believe, for Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel. I don't think either one of them had really had a manager during their entire run up to that point in the uh, in the AWA, and he led them to the. Uh, tag team title and that promotion too and uh, where i'm where i lived i was fortunate enough to get to see the awa tv because our cable company which uh, cable tv at that time was very different than what it is now uh, you didn't really have uh, cable channels like we know of today that are only on cable what what cable tv did here in the late 60s and early 70s was it gave you an opportunity to see your local channels as well as some from a little bit further away with uh, without having to move the rabbit ears or without having to see them in snow. And uh, one of the, the channels that uh, that our cable company here picked up was uh, from uh, Decatur, Illinois, and, and they showed the, uh, the uh, AWA All-Star Wrestling show really, really late on Sunday. Sometimes it might be on as early as at 1230 at night, but uh, other times I think it would come on uh, like at 2.30 in the morning. And I would always try my best to uh, stay up and watch that or hope that I would wake up. And and uh, I did get to see uh, a, a lot of the uh, the first uh, matches of uh, Bobby Heenan as the, the manager of the uh, of the great tag team, uh, Stevens and Bockwinkle, in the AWA. Um, uh, before Heenan left, uh, this is uh, another tale that I think had, has uh, – is not really well known by a, a lot of people was that for the, the first and I believe the only time in his career, he became a baby face during an angle that involved Bruiser and Sheik. You know, Sheik was being managed by Eddie the Brain Creechman and uh, feuding with uh, Bruiser. And after not getting satisfaction in a couple of matches with the Sheik, Bruiser was on TV and uh, he, he told the audience that. Uh, he was going to counteract Eddie the Brain Creechman by getting himself a manager, and he had to get somebody just as nasty and just as dirty as him. And he brought out on an interview with uh, Sam Maniker, of all people, Bobby Heenan, pretty boy Bobby Heenan, and announced him as being his manager. And Heenan came on TV, and, and instead of being the smug, arrogant, guy that he usually was on TV, he suddenly became self, soft-spoken, and he started saying things like, you know, I know you people probably don't really want to trust me, but, uh, uh, I, I, and, and you really shouldn't because I did a lot of bad things, but, uh, you know, I'm telling you that uh, that I'm a changed man, and, and I'm going to be there in the corner of the bruiser, and I'm going to help him beat the sheik, and the, the people believed it, and in storyline, Bruiser believed it, and as the match started, it, it looked like Heenan was really on Bruiser's side, but Eddie Creechman got up on the apron with a stack of money and handed that to Bobby Heenan in that match, and he caused Heenan to turn on Bruiser. And that led to a, a, a tag team match where Heenan teamed up with Sheik uh, the following month uh, against Bruiser, and uh, I believe the tag team partner was probably Bobo Brazil. I'd have to look that up to, to be uh, perfectly sure. But uh, uh, Heenan got beaten to a bloody pulp at the end of that match and and uh, left the territory essentially for good. Uh, um, he did come back a few years later. Uh, along the way, I would see him in the dressing room 
maybe once a year or once every year and a half where he would just come for a visit. And uh, that was because his, his mother still lived in Indianapolis. And uh, Heenan would manage him, or would uh, would uh, if he had a night off in the uh, WWE, the uh, AWA, uh, he would uh, come back and visit her. And if the show was uh, being held at the uh, at the Expo Center in Indianapolis, he would uh, come in there and uh, visit with people and drink a few beers with the guys. But he he did come back for an angle in uh, 1978. Uh, and that was when the Giants were uh, uh, still the uh, tag team champions at the at the end of their reign, and uh, he did a heel commentary with uh, Sam Manninger, which really wasn't being done in any, any territory uh, at that, up to that point. Uh, but uh, Heenan ended up being brought in to team up with uh, Golden Boy Paul Christie against uh, Bruiser and Spike Huber, and, and uh, they worked to about two or three uh, main events in Indianapolis and. Uh, I, I know some of the people on the ring crew, uh, Bill Goodnight uh, uh, is a name that comes to mind. But he, I remember him telling me, he said, oh, he's going to be on the show next month. This place is going to be a sellout. Well, I knew the crowd would probably be up a little bit, but uh, we were beyond being able to sell out the, uh, the Expo Center at that time because you had too many of the guys that had been on, on almost every card for what seemed like 20 years at that point. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but so they, they, there were some memorable matches, and we got to see Heenan in the ring, uh, not as a manager, but uh, as a wrestler, for uh, the the last time in the WWA. And uh, you know he uh, went back to to uh, bigger and better things in the AWA before moving on to the uh, the, um, the WWF. Um, whenever Heenan, uh, interestingly enough, when he did come back in 1978, he was not only uh, introduced as Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan, but he got the whole name. He was Pretty Boy Bobby the Brain Heenan for, uh, for those matches. Interesting. And, and uh, of course, he wasn't called the, uh, uh, the Pretty Boy in the AWA because uh, Vern already had uh, a Pretty Boy in the form of uh, Larry Hennig yep. that I believe you can, you can hear his interview on your show. Yep. Episode 191. Yep, yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, I don't, no surprise there. Bobby Heenan at number one. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, like you said, I think Bobby Heenan is number one overall in the, in, in not just the WWE, but in, in all wrestling managers. Um, so no, no surprise there, but I mean, you know, a little, little suspense, I guess for two through five, uh, counting them down. Uh, but the, there were, there were several other managers uh, over the years in the WWE. So, uh, John, you got some honorable mentions here. If, if you want to yes, rattle some of those yes, guys off. Right. And, and probably just about any of these people, could have uh, made the top five at uh, position four or five, but uh, uh, a, a fame, uh, famous wrestler that's turned manager, Leo the Lion Newman, appeared in the WWA and in 64. He managed people like uh, Poffo and the original Nikolai Volkov and, and I believe uh, other top heels at that time. Didn't spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, we mentioned Coconut Willie, a guy that uh, had managed the Assassins. Uh, I think he uh, ended up leaving here and, and worked uh, for Sheik in Detroit under a different name for a while. Uh, another Detroit guy that uh, had uh, pretty big success here was George Crybaby Cannon, uh, not only as a wrestler, but uh, he also managed the, the Kangaroos uh, through several runs through the territory, including a, a tag team title reign. Uh, we talked about Eddie the Brain Creechman, the manager of the Sheik. Uh, every time Sheik would come in, he would come back. 
There was also uh, a, a manager by the name of Cash Fox Jim Kent, and uh, he came into the area with the Bounty Hunters as their manager and took them to the uh, WWA Tag Team title. Uh, they were together in uh, various uh, southern NWA territories, and uh, Kent was a, a pretty good uh, wrestler in his own right. He was uh, kind of on the small side, but uh, um, they were definitely uh, uh, one of the uh, top tag teams in the area uh, during their time. We had uh, Miss Bunny Love, who was the not only a manager but also the loved interest and went on to become the wife of golden boy Paul Christie. Uh, the only female manager that, that we had in the WWA during the uh, entire run of the promotion. There was uh, Reverend Tiny Tim Hampton, uh, another guy from the uh, Detroit area. He managed uh, Paul Christie, uh, Roger Kirby, uh, Ernie Ladd. Uh, Ernie Ladd had a like a four-week run as the WWA champion, uh, winning and then losing the title back to Bruiser, but he was managed by Tiny Hampton. Uh, Jerry Graham Jr. dabbled in managing a little bit uh, here as well, but he was primarily a wrestler. Uh, he did kind of uh, do a uh, an angle where it looked like he was going to get Yukon uh, uh, Moose Cholock to turn heel, and uh, that only lasted for uh, well, didn't even last for the one match that they were uh, teamed <laughs> together, and and uh, Cholock uh, uh, went back to being a babyface by by uh, by turning on Graham. Uh, and then uh, in the uh, latter years of the uh, WWA, we had Rooster Griffin, and uh, another guy that I'd like to make mention of would be Saul Creechman, also known as the uh, world-famous, renowned wrestling photographer <laughs> Scott Romer, yep. who you've had on the show a number of times. Yep. And, uh, of course, uh, his wrestling name was given to him by his uh, father-in-law at the time because uh, uh, Scott married uh, Bruiser's daughter, Michelle, after she had divorced uh, Spike Huber. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, Bruiser kind of borrowed the first name from one wrestling manager, Saul, <laughs> Creech, uh, Saul Weingraw, to give him his first name and uh, the last name of Eddie Creechman and came up with Saul Creechman for for uh, Scott to be uh, a manager. And he was uh, prominently the manager of a tag team here called the, uh, the World Warriors. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Bruiser did that quite a bit. Uh, you know, of course, you know Bobby Heenan's first name was not truly Bobby, uh, right? But uh, Bruiser gave it to him, and it, Heenan was never quite sure why. But uh, there was always it was always suspected, from what I've heard, that uh, it was because of Bobby Davis. That uh, that's yes, just I, I, I believe that's probably the case. Um, uh, you know, I always knew him as Bobby, and uh, you know, uh, as well as my my dad, who knew him you know quite well from from the days when Heenan really got his start is uh, selling popcorn and carrying the ring jackets and uh -huh. setting up chairs and, and things like that. He was, he was basically a gopher for Bruiser and uh, then got the big break uh, after, uh, you know, being trained by Prince Pullins to, uh, to wrestle, uh, got the, the break to uh, be a manager and, and he made the most of it. Uh, and, and really, I, I think Heenan's best work was in the WWA and the AWA yeah. uh, as a, as a manager, even more so than what you got to see him as, in the uh, um, what we now know as the WWE, and, and that was mainly because the, they they had to do more of the comedy stuff, and, and he yeah. was great with comedy. Uh, you know, no, make no mistake about that. But uh, as a as a true heel wrestling manager, uh, his most villainous work would have been in the AWA and uh, right here in the uh, WWA. 
Yeah, and uh, and of course, I mean, uh, so many so many of the the characteristic Bobby Heenan things that he were were you know perfected here. I mean, I mean you, we mentioned you know with Mark Manson earlier being a bump machine. There was there was no bigger bump machine than Bobby Heenan, and uh, that's absolutely right. You know, he and, would just go flying, and and sometimes he would take bumps by flying over the top rope just to get away from Bruiser or or whomever was uh, wanting to uh, pound him into uh, oblivion. And of course, he was a uh, the best bleeder we ever had. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. He's a quite the bleeder, uh, notorious, you know, on being on several magazine covers with the, uh, the crimson mask, uh, because you know, that was, a uh, was always a draw back in the day to sell magazines, but uh, yeah, Bobby, Bobby would bleed and And, uh, you know, it was the Bobby was the perfect foil for bruiser and no matter who Absolutely. he was managing and whatever else it was, it was bruiser and Bobby. And, uh, they were, they were the, the, the perfect rivals, uh, for the territory. So, but, uh, well, you know, uh, thanks for coming on, John. And uh, we always always appreciate you coming on. And, and, of course, we'll have you on more in the future. We always do. Uh, but this is this has been fun talking about uh, the, the, the top five managers and the honorable mentions in the WWE. It, it's always fun. Uh, the listeners always love when we talk WWE history. And uh, and, and diving into this has, has been fun. And uh, I'm sure there's there's some guys out there, some listeners out there, who uh, who heard of a couple guys maybe that they're, they're not real familiar with. Uh, you know, like That's I said, true. some of these are not, not household names uh, in, right. in wrestling right. overall, but uh, when, when you talk the history of the WWA, they, they certainly are very important figures. And uh, it, it's, it's fun to talk about. And I, I always like that. I always like shining a little light on the guys that, that not, not everybody's familiar with, right? I mean, everybody knows Bobby Heenan, and you cannot have this discussion without talking about Bobby Heenan. But, uh, you know, not everybody knows about, you know, Major Duke George and Mark Manson and guys like that. So that's the fun part to me is, is getting to, to talk and hear about those guys that not everybody's familiar with. Absolutely. So, all right, John. Well, thank you for coming on. We appreciate your time and uh, talking to us about the WWE history and uh, your first out, first-hand uh, experience uh, with the promotion. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on the show and look forward to uh, coming back again in the future. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at thewfia.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA1969. Thank you to John Lawson for coming on and talking with me about the uh, top five WWA managers in the history. That was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, John will be back in the future. It's always good to have him on and talk about the WWA. Uh, our next episode will be in two weeks. And uh, we have another special interview that's coming up on that. It's a first time interview to have this, this group together. Uh, that's right. There's more than one person in this interview because in two weeks, I will have the former WWA Tag Team Champions, the World Warriors, and their manager, Saul Creechman, on for an interview. Mad Max, Supermax, and Saul Creechman, or as they're known to the rest of the world, Sam DeSero, John Richmond, and Scott Romer, uh, they will join me for a special group reunion interview. This is the first time the three of them have talked in many, many years, and it is uh, super cool to sit down and talk to them about their time together, their time in the WWA, what they did outside the WWA, and just hear these guys reconnect and tell stories. Um, it, it was just like, it's just like these three had, had not been apart, right? They just clicked back in and started telling stories and laughing, and it was a lot of fun. I can't wait for you to hear that in two weeks. Uh, once again, a special reminder, please make sure you subscribe to us 
on whatever your favorite podcast platform uh, that you that you listen to. And then follow us on social media. Again, the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads as Wrestle Nostalgia. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at The Dave Dynasty. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure you go and buy a shirt and help support the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for seven years of podcasting. Uh, it has been a blast. It has been fun. And uh, it's just beginning, right? I'm just starting. My passion, my fire is still there. I've got so many great people I want to talk to. So many great historical uh, time periods and and happenings that I want to discuss. So this is just the beginning. There's lots more of wrestling nostalgia to come in the future. Seven years is only the tip of the iceberg, my friends. But until we come back in two weeks with that amazing interview with the World Warriors and Saul Creechman, wherever you go and whatever you do, be good, be safe, and keep on growing. <laughs> 